Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Trump wins. And remember, the, the, there are two rules of Trumpism. I have been sharing this since Donald Trump ran for office the first time. There are two rules of Trumpism. The first rule is that Trump wins. The second rule is that a deal can always be made as long as it adheres to the first rule of Trumpism. That has been as true as the day is long. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's happening, everybody? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Live stream going. Rumble, YouTube, Facebook, even though Facebook is awful. It is all there. and Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. Um, the, the numbers do indeed speak for themselves. The numbers state that Trump, this is 93% of the vote counted, that Trump has uh, 54%, 54.5%, and Haley has herself 43.3%. Now, what's, what's interesting to note uh, about this, this, this number is, is that when you look at it, you look at that spread, and you say that spread is uh, 11%. And you say, okay, Trump won by double digits. That's a fine win, a good win. Take double digits. Haley had her, her shot in New Hampshire. More th- thoughtful or thinking themselves as independent-type uh, voters. This is, this is her moment, and she lost by double digits. That's, that's certainly a way to take it. The other way to take it is to take a look at the New Hampshire polling like we did yesterday. And you realize that the real clear politics average had Trump at 55.8% and Haley at 36.5%. Trump came in at 54.5% and Haley came in at 43.3%. Well, 55.8% to 54.5%, that's dead on. That is the second time it's been dead on, but it was dead on because there were three polls that took place in the last two days, or the two days before the primary, that put Trump over 60%. So those polls were certainly off because Trump's number was, I mean, it it, it raised the average to get to being accurate, but I think it would have been accurate anyway. Trump uh, at 55.8 was the polling. Trump comes in at 54.5 in the reality. Half the party's with him. No matter how you want to twist it, turn it, move it, cajole it, uh, do whatever you want to do, kitten, half the party is with him, and that's okay. That's where you're at. Look at this Haley number one more time. Oh, don't get angry with me. I look at numbers. 43.3. The polling said 36.5. 43.3. She gets to say she outperformed. Now, you might say, Tony, that don't matter worth a damn, kitten. It doesn't matter. It's over, Johnny. This whole thing is done, finished, complete. It's over. Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? That's a, over? that's a solid point, Senator Blutarski. It is a solid point that it is not over uh, until until uh, uh, we decide it is. 
but politics is 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 different than real life and uh for the most part it's over but you can't get away from that now can you i mean you may want to and i get it and 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 i'm not arguing that nikki haley's road isn't just not incredibly hard it's insane but holy mcmackerel she gets to say she overperformed and therefore she might actually be able to keep some money rolling in to get her to South Carolina. She needs South Carolina more than she needs oxygen. We know this to be true and there has been no polling change in, in, in South Carolina. We deal with the same numbers that we have always been dealing with, which have, and the real clear politics average, Trump 52, Haley 21. That, kids, is a 30-point spread. So even if we want to argue, and the Haley team wants to argue, that they they overperformed, because remember, politics is always an expectations game. You'll notice that you're not getting from me uh, what you may be getting from, from, from others, which is up, oh, it's over, it's all Trump, Trumpy, Trump, Trump, Trump. I believe in the necessity of the breakdown. It's incredibly important to see what happens, what's going to happen, what people are going to say, how it's going to get responded to. That way you're fully prepared for whatever comes at you. I think that is important. I think that not enough people do it, and I'll be good and damned if I'm one of those people. I'm doing it. 30 points is 30 points is 30 points. So even if Haley outperforms and she's, you know, it outperforms by seven, you mean in her home state she only loses by 23? Now, I don't have uh, right now some polling data uh, about Nevada, and I don't even think Haley's trying for Nevada, but I want you to work through these numbers. Because people are trying to find a lot of different ways for this to be spun well for Haley. And I take a look at everything. I'm like, how does this play out? I mean, if you listen to Nikki Haley, this race, as we said, or as Senator Blutarski said, far from over. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory tonight. He earned it. And I want to acknowledge that. Now, you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves, saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. If you say so, but for you, South Carolina could very well be last in the nation. She went on to say there are a dozen states to go. Yes, yes, uh, uh, about four dozen because there are 48 states left to go. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you will hear regarding uh, Haley's stance and Haley's position is that the Democrats crossed over. You will hear that Democrats crossed over and 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 they voted uh, for her. So you see, you can't uh, trust the, the 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 whole thing. I want to break this down into some component pieces because that argument I think is very very strange. 
And I don't think that argument does Donald Trump nor Trump supporters very well. I think it actually is a backfire argument. In New Hampshire, there are people who changed their registration to Republican to vote in in the primary for Nikki Haley. You see, that's what they did, and that's why the number was so close. It's much further. That's an argument for why Nikki Haley is a better general election candidate. Don't forget, you have to win in November. Have we forgotten? Are we so focused on the primary that we forgot that we have to win in November? Like, I hear this from Rona McDaniel, the head of the GOP. Well, one thing I will say about the whole field of candidates that have run for president on our side, I commend them. They've been great. This has been a great contest. But I think there's some history that was made tonight. We have never had a nominee in our party that has uh, won without winning both with uh, winning either Iowa or New Hampshire. Donald Trump is the first ever to win both. Uh, I'm looking at the math and the path going forward. And I don't see it for Nikki Haley. I think she's run a great campaign. But I do think there is a message that's coming out from the voters, which is very clear. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. First, Donald Trump is the first non-incumbent ever to win Iowa and New Hampshire. I didn't know that stat. That's that's crazy. Like, that's an amazing number. Like, wow, there's been a lot of elections. But here's the conversation, Rona McDaniel. You should be fired. You think this is about getting Haley out of a race so we can unite around Trump? What have you done in the 50 states to ensure the lawyers are already preparing for whatever Michigas goes forward? That Michigas is uh, the Yiddish for BS. What have you done to ensure you don't get screwed like you did in 2020? You're the one saying you got screwed. What have you done? And where has the Republican Party been to ask this question? You think that the issue is some guy in New Hampshire changed his registration to vote for Haley? That's the issue? Are we all freaking deranged? That's nothing. You think that, well, you see, that's why Haley got so close. Could we get serious for a second? Could we have a moment of agreement? And the moment of agreement is, if you think there were shenanigans in 2020, and you and I may differ on where the shenanigans were and what the shenanigans were, this, that, and the other, the issues, the problem, what some people would describe as straight-out theft, what have you done, what has the Republican Party done, to ensure they're prepared to fight in 2024? You're talking about some person in Nashua who decided to change their registration. You see, that's the problem, Tony. No. If anything, if I'm the Haley team, I use that as the example of why I'm the better general election candidate. Because after all, it's about winning. Yeah, you got to win the primary, but you then got to win a general. And Donald Trump is tougher to get over the hump of a general than Nikki Haley is. The numbers show that. This is a unique moment of people not actually recognizing what it is that they're saying. And how these things can be spun. Nikki Haley can't actually turn this, I think, into momentum, however. And certainly Republicans have a couple of built-in opportunities here more than ever before. And those opportunities are being given to them by Joe Biden when you hear things like this. We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the women in America unless you want to get the benefit. I don't, what are you looking at me for? 
I don't know what the hell the man said. Uh, then again, he doesn't know what he said. Joe Biden is imminently beatable. This is exactly what Dean Phillips, the congressman from Minnesota, the Democrat who's running for president, has been saying. He got 20% of the vote in New Hampshire. By the way, Biden wasn't on the ballot because New Hampshire went first and the Democrats said you're not allowed to go first. South Carolina goes first because, you know, equity or whatever it is. So Biden wasn't on the ballot. So instead he was a write-in and he got over, he got like 60 some odd percent of the vote as a write-in. Can you imagine you wrote in the name Joe Biden? You wrote that in? You, you, you did that seriously with a straight face and everything. That's, that is quite incredible. Did people clearly come over to vote for Nikki Haley? Yes. That is not proof that Nikki Haley is unpopular, but rather could be proof that Nikki Haley would be a better general election candidate. Now, you say to me, no, Tony, it has to be that she's unpopular because within the Republican Party, her number would be much, much lower. Yeah, very, very possibly. Maybe, but the other side of that coin is by doing so, the argument is, well, this hurts Trump because it makes the race look close. I thought the Democrats wanted Trump. It seems obvious that the chattering classes desperately want it to be Trump because they think Trump is the most beatable guy. That's why they've been pushing for the last two years that he's a dictator, that he's a threat to democracy. I mean... You understand that they at MSNBC and CNN and the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post, they've been sowing the seeds of serious, serious violence. We're not, we're not saying anything new to anybody here. How many times are you going to tell America that guy's a threat to democracy? That guy's a threat to democracy. They're a threat to democracy. The whole idea of uh, the whole Republican Party is MAGA, right? Make America great again. And um, it's a threat to democracy. How many times do you think that gets said before somebody says, I got to do something about this threat to democracy? Oh, if we don't understand yet what the the level of irresponsibility from the entire staff there, uh, air staff at MSNBC and CNN, we we don't know anything. But if the objective is to go against Trump, one would not do anything to stop Trump from getting elected. So again, I argue that this idea of they all switched over doesn't make sense. They switched over to stop Trump. They want to stop Trump, but they want to fight Trump because they think Trump is the easier beat. Even the numbers show that if we are to believe uh, the, the, the polling numbers, Haley wins in a general election by a greater margin than, than, than Trump does. And Trump, in, in the vast majority, there might be a poll or two out there where he didn't, but in the vast majority, he has uh, exceeded Joe Biden. I don't think Trump people, Trump supporters, or the Trump team should be using this argument of switching over. I think under any level of questioning, it kind of falls apart. And nor do I think that Trump needs to go down the road uh, of, of attack. To tell you, it was very interesting because I said, wow, what a great victory. But then somebody ran up to the stage all dressed up nicely. <laughs> When it was at seven, but now I just walked up and it's at 14. But, but she ran up when it was seven. And, you know, we have to do what's good for our party. 
And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win. She lost. And, you know. Yes, she did. And I think that if you're going to do the unity thing post Ron DeSantis in Iowa, you might want to stick with that because I think that actually worked for you. But he's going after Haley like it's his job. Now, there's an argument there. You haven't won until you won. The other side of that coin is you won. Act like it. I don't know if that one's going to hurt him as much. What I do know is that Haley's path is beyond tiny. Can she play spoiler? Right now, I don't even see that possibility. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. The largest cigar and bourbon review radio show in the country uh, called Eat, Drink, Smoke. I I pay attention to what's going on uh, in in, in the world of cigars. I don't always um, pay attention to what's going on in the world of of cigarettes. I I, I don't. But this is, Zinn is is like a pouch, right? It's a nicotine pouch, like a... I guess it's like chew, but without the chew. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. And now Chuck Schumer, uh, the the Senate Majority Leader, Democrat from New York, who has the kind of voice that, that makes you want to, um, I don't know, uh, give up the nuclear secret so it'll stop. He's going after Zinn. It's for people 21 and older. I don't know if they market to, to, to kids. I, I would certainly believe not at this stage. It, 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 it's a problem for children and it has to stop. Why is it that every time a product comes to market that is, is, is focused on helping people not smoke, which they're told is bad, it's very bad, um, this government goes after those people? Why is that? Time and time and time and time again, they, they go after the thing, the group, the organization, the company that, that is trying to help people not smoke. It's ridiculous. Yet, it continues to happen. So Schumer wants uh, a crackdown, a federal action on these uh, Zinn pouches. I know zero about Zinn. I don't know a thing about I, I, I smoke cigars, all right? I, I smoke cigars uh, enjoyably, and I'm building a whole studio to be able to smoke while I do the show and do my, my other show. That's because it's, it's, it's just how I live. It's my thing. Everyone's got their own thing. I, I, I take all the risks, and cigars are not cigarettes. Very, very different. There's no inhaling. I've got FDA studies. I can have this conversation. You've got other issues, but not that. Not not the inhaling issue. If an adult wants to take something, they can take something. Why can't an adult have this? Because children might do it. Once again, the federal government overstepping. What I want a federal government to do is actually focus on the things that it's supposed to, like Article 1, Section 8. And when it comes to foreign policy, actually protecting American interests and American lives, which is not happening under the Biden administration. Noah Rothman. 
of Nash Review with the latest on that. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. I don't know if there's any question to whether or not Joe Biden's policy in the Middle East has done us damage. Whether Joe Biden's foreign policies in general have done us damage. Let's go back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let us discuss the Chinese weather balloon. Did we forget that we allowed this balloon to traverse the nation? Not only did we allow it, we never got the full story until recently that they knew it. They knew where it was, they knew it was coming, and their objective was to not tell us. It took two guys in Montana who happened to look up in the sky and say, Tommy, Tommy, what is that? I don't know, Paulie, it looks like a balloon. Tommy, that's a big-ass balloon, Tommy. I mean, I mean, I've seen some balloons in my days. I've had some birthday parties. That's a big balloon. You sure? You really are right. That's a huge balloon. We should call somebody. You know what? You know what? Call Billy down at the police department. He'll know what it is. He'll know what to do. And that's how they figured out there's a damn balloon that came from China. And they knew when it launched, and they knew how it traveled, and they could have shot it down any time. Oh, but they couldn't shoot it down over Montana because, as you know, all the people would get harmed. Then you take a look at October 7th, and then you take a look at the Houthi rebels engaging in full-on attacks on tankers, on cargo ships, the Iranians doing the same. And all of a sudden, there's a question about who controls the navigable seas. I'm Tony Katz. As I said, good to be with you. Noah Rothman joins us right now from National Review. Follow him on the exit. Noah uh, C. Rothman, you write about this more uh, than, than than most and, and following uh, a lot of this on, on the national security side and really a, a conversation about foreign policy in, in general. We have had agreements and disagreements. Uh, this w- w- was was you, Joe Biden's provocative weakness. As I understand you, Noah, you're taking the point or, or, or the position that the biggest issue with Joe Biden's foreign policy is that Joe Biden is unwilling to have a foreign policy that has any concreteness. Am I off base in your understanding? I would amend slightly because I do think Joe Biden has a foreign policy. It's a profoundly dovish foreign policy. I think he is even more so than Barack Obama committed to American retrenchment by which I mean withdrawing from a lot of the traditional commitments that the United States as the global hegemonic power has all over the world. That has been his policy, and that is provocative. I think he has demonstrated a willingness and intention and, a, and, and actually a, a, a efficacy in executing that imperative, just withdrawing from uh, hotspots in the world or where we have obligations and creating power vacuums in our wake. And that is provocative. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. That which we lose, someone else gains. And a lot of uh, revanchist, revisionist powers, Iran, Russia, a variety of other um, uh, extranational groups, transnational terrorist groups, they see an opportunity, an open window. It's not going to be open forever, and they're making the most of it. So this was an argument made, Noah, uh, when President Barack Obama 
went on what, what many called that world apology tour, right? He's in Egypt and other places, and he's, he's apologizing for America's actions. He's really apologizing for America's might. And the argument was that while maybe in the United States that is seen as humility in other cultures, other nations, other uh, political philosophies, that is seen as weakness and something to take advantage of and exploit, I think we have seen that the desire to take advantage of and exploit Joe Biden's weakness, this same exact kind of theory, uh, is going on in an unrelenting fashion. I think so. Um, there's something admirable and unique in the American character that it it is an anti-colonial power. It has always been one. It does not want to maintain and preserve foreign possessions, foreign entanglements uh, for the sake of national prestige. As much as a very cynical reading of American foreign policy on the on the far right and in the progressive left uh, believe, um, the United States is not an imperial power. It has grand obligations across the, the planet Earth because we were bequeathed that obligation in 1945 uh, as a result of uh, the where the powers fell in the wake of World War II. It does us no good to bemoan the obligations that we inherited from the British, for example, with regard to, as you said in the, in the outset, preserving and guaranteeing the free navigation of trade lanes in, in the seas. That is the responsibility of the global hegemon. And the global economic market, the world market, which has only existed since 1991, this is a pretty new feature, it existed until 1914, took a big long break, and then came back in 1991 and has produced unparalleled prosperity and a dramatic peace, a peace that the world had never previously known. Go look at how many people died in wars prior to the beginning of this century and the end of the 1990s. It was a lot more than we have today. As much as we think this the world right now is, is so unstable and there's wars everywhere and people are dying all over the place, that is an ahistorical reading of our current environment. Right now we have an unprecedented level of peace and prosperity across the planet, which has lifted billions of people out of poverty. It's a miracle. And anything that comes after it will be suboptimal relative to our current condition. So it's the sort of thing you should seek to preserve. And Joe Biden has very little interest in doing that. But so, so it's funny that you, that you phrase it in that way. We have less war now, talking to Noah Rothman of National Review. Uh, you should check out his books, including Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. That's available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. Because what you would hear politically is... Withdrawal from Afghanistan, absolute failure, got Americans killed and left hardware by the billions for enemies to utilize. Uh, you could not deter uh, Russia from invading uh, U- Ukraine, and that has reached now levels of World War I uh, trench warfare stalemate, that this is going to be a war of attrition involving human bodies that Ukraine has to understand that it cannot win. And now you have Hamas with the attack on Israel on October 7th, and through Hamas, through Hezbollah, and through the Houthis, you have the United States at war with Iran because Iran is at war with us. Uh, People would look at a very askew at your statement that this has been a peaceful time. Yeah, they're wrong. (laughs) And they're just wrong. I mean, as I said, it's an ahistorical perspective. Talk about World War I. You know how many people were in the trenches in World War I? Millions. There were millions of people in those trenches in the Somme. And there were 
millions of casualties in the First and Second World War. Tens of thousands of Americans died in Vietnam over the course of a decade. We've had nothing even remotely approaching that, to say nothing of uh, conflicts in the developing world, major major wars between great powers has been something that was almost academic up until very recently when it has become an existential prospect. Uh, just if you look at only the body count alone, there's no comparison between the world of the American hegemony that has existed since 1991 and anything that came prior. And if you don't want to just look at casualty figures alone, you can look at GDP, expenditures, um, just the, the number of nations that are going to war with each other, nation states. Um, it just, nothing compares. So yes, I understand why people would want to think that they live in the end of history. It's a narcissistic view. It exists only with, it can survive only by discounting the record that we all inherited. Uh, and it actually exists to justify a lot of, I think, dangerous policy prescriptions that recommend, indeed, uh, support the kind of retrenchment that Joe Biden is engaged in now. This is not a democratic phenomenon. There are plenty of Republicans. In fact, the oldest species of Republicanism prior to the Reagan revolution was a quasi-isolationism that regarded America's oceans as uh, a guarantee of our ability to remain distant from foreign obligations. So uh, it's, I, not, it's not right, r weird for Americans to retreat to that point of view. It's just wrong. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, this, this idea of America as the, he uh, the hegemonic power, uh, I'm going to try and rephrase that a little bit. In that, well, I can define it. I can define it in terms that are uh, like concrete. Let's start there. Let, let's start there sure. and, and we'll see where we go. Global hegemony means um, the United States is the sole superpower, hyperpower, we used to say right in the, in the wake of the end of the Cold War, because the United States is the only power on the planet that is capable of projecting sustained force, sustained, meaning over the course of months, even years, on the other side of the planet to a degree that would um, that would affect the kind of foreign policy outcomes that we would want to see, like, for example, remaking the face uh, of a nation state. The French can kind of do that. The British can kind of do that. Eh, not really, really in a sustained way. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians can project power across their borders. Can they project power across the planet Earth? No, they cannot. So that's what I mean by global hegemony. Well, let's now take it maybe as as it's seen under under Biden, because there is no projection. And what we have seen from the Houthi rebels in being able to take cargo ships, uh, take people prisoner, actually kidnap people. And these are not cave dwellers. These are well sophisticated, planned out attacks and the drops from helicopters and, and, and everything else. You're saying that what what Biden believes is in this in this dovish point of view that a level of diplomacy can actually bring these things to heel. And that is the show of American might as opposed to actual American might, which he's engaged in now with the United Kingdom in eight separate uh, uh, air raids, if you will, against the Houthis in Yemen that have produced zero results so when does he learn that the dovish approach is a valueless one and have we shown that the hawkish approach has changed anything well i think it's too early to judge what the hawkish approach is i mean we do have some signs right now that degrading the houthi's capability to project power into the gulf of Aden and the red sea uh, are actually degrading their ability to project power. It's kind of what you would expect, whether it degrades their willingness to engage in these kind of piratical attacks, for example, and attacks on 
shipping uh, is another matter. They are well equipped from Iran, and they show every indication of willing to expend all the all the ordinance that they've been bequeathed by their Iranian sponsors. That's something that we can do something about by taking those those ordinances out. We can't necessarily degrade their ability to uh, execute these attacks if they want to execute them, unless we were willing to put boots on the ground in Yemen. We're not. Uh, but we can partially neutralize the threat to a degree that they just can't execute it. But the Biden administration will be unwilling to do what I think it needs to do, which is to uh, impose uh, more caution on their sponsors and stop the tempo of events, not just in Iraq and in Yemen, rather, but in Syria and Iraq, where U.S. troops and U.S. positions have been under sustained attack. Since 10-7, or this is an Iranian campaign, began on 10-7 with, as you say, the, their proxy in Hamas. And the only proxy that has been relatively quiet, and I say relatively advisedly, is the is Hezbollah. Um, and only because we've parked so many naval assets off the coast of the Levant in order to deter them. Deterrence isn't necessarily working against Iran, but it can. Uh, and it usually does when you hit them in the face. Uh, Ronald Reagan dropped a a series of Iranian warships, the bottom of the Persian Gulf in the 1980s. Uh, Donald Trump executed the strike on Soleimani in 2020. And in both occasions, you saw you saw movement from the Iranians that communicate their willingness to de-escalate while just doing some face-saving maneuvers, like throwing some rockets at us. Uh, but it is nevertheless a de-escalatory posture. There are elements in the Iranian regime that know that if they got into a direct conflict with the United States, the Iranian regime would cease to exist. They don't want that. So they do exercise some caution when the costs of their campaigns become higher than they're willing to absorb. Right now, the benefits of this campaign is to force the United States to move assets around, to demonstrate that they can close off the Suez Canal to commerce whenever they want. Those are a lot of really tangible benefits for the regime. That's, Until we raise the costs, this is going to continue. This, this is my point, that that the all of these actions, the idea that we can punch them in the face and make it stop, is predicated on the idea that we're willing to punch them in the face, and Joe Biden isn't. Thus, I discuss a, a weak foreign policy. Of course, they clearly do feel that they are emboldened and capable, and it is more than just the United States here. It is the world allowing this to happen. So when we go back to this concept that you bring up about being the world he hegemonic power, I think the only question left is, are we really, based on this philosophy, which seems to not only exist within a uh, Biden world, but also exists in serious pockets of the political right? Yeah, I think if we were, if I'd be very charitable. I, I do think there's a admirable quality to Americans generally who are reluctant to engage in the kind of behaviors and activities that are we need to engage in in order to preserve American geopolitical dominance. I don't think Americans really like having geopolitical dominance. They certainly don't like having obligations abroad, and they don't like being an imperial power. That's good. I mean, that's that's something that is noble and inherent in the American character. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be too abstract about it because I disagree with it. But it is nevertheless a laudable disposition. The problem is that none of our, no, no other American adversary, either our near peer competitors or rogue states like Iran and North Korea, share that objective or that enterprise. Um, and they make no bones about their willingness to coordinate in the open directly in the form of military exercises, selling each other arms, supporting each other's enterprises, supporting each other's destabilizing activities. They're all engaged in one mission, very overtly, even explicitly, to put an end to the age of American dominance. After that, they can work out all the problems that they have behind the scenes. But the first task is get rid of the United States 
make it retrench, make it withdraw behind its borders, sacrifice its allies, an ally here, an interest there, an objective there, and all of it culminates in the end of the Pax Americana. Um, that's not something Americans should look forward to. The world that awaits us on the other side of that looks a lot like the world that we got a glimpse of on 10-7. Uh, be- before I-, I let you go, and, and, and I, and I want to dig in a little bit, I only got about 60 seconds on the radio side here. Uh, I want to bring you to uh, last night, uh, the primary, uh, Trump uh, v. Haley, talk about two very different views of the world regarding uh, foreign, foreign policy. Trump uh, getting the 11 uh, point of victory. Uh, were I, uh, your take on whether there is still some rational path for Nikki Haley. Oh, I don't think so. I, I think this primary wraps up pretty quickly. But this is not something that I think Republicans should be celebrating necessarily. And the uh, Republicans who are interested in winning in November, um, New Hampshire looked a lot like the election in 2020 in microcosm. About 75 percent of Republicans turned out for Donald Trump. They made up 49 percent of the electorate and they're thrilled to vote for Trump. He mobilized a very similar uh the antonym, you know, the opposite reaction in his opponents, in the small number of Republicans who oppose him, who are dead set against not voting for him in November, by the way, if they mean what they're telling pollsters, and the independents and you know, the handful of Democrats who turned out to oppose him. He enthuses the people who oppose him as much, if not more, than the people who support him. I'm going to put uh, you right there. a long road to hoe. I'm going to stop you right there. Noah Rothman, National Review. I'm Tony Katz. Man, I, I went long. I went long with Noah Rothman, and I apologize for nothing. Um, people cannot act right on an airplane. I have a very disgusting story for you. Sorry to hear it. And the DEI hellscape. The University of Wisconsin Law. <laughs> Best of luck hiring a lawyer. This is Tony Katz today.